0: Welcome to the Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through Scripture. Our pastor is currently leading us through a study in the Book of Ephesians, and this week he'll be talking to us from Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-two, with the second part of a message entitled "Christ Makes All the Difference." Now, if you happen to live in northwest Arkansas and you're looking for a church home, let me invite you to check out Calvary. You can find information at calvaryfanville.com, or you can call us at 479-442-4634. You can reach us through email at info at calvaryfanville.com. Again, we're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen. Let me encourage you, if you are enjoying what you're listening to, like it, share it. Let others know about our podcast. We want to share the truth of God's Word with as many people as we can. Well, again, our pastor is in the book of Ephesians, so let's listen together.
1: Well, I love to read the stories of the Old Testament. Do you? I know we're in the New Testament and we are on about message number 15 of the book of Ephesians and we will, Lord willing, finish chapter 2 today. But uh, I love to read the stories of the Old Testament. I love stories. I grew up hearing my grandpa tell me stories, and it took me a while to figure out, you know what, I don't think all of those things he told me was true. But everything we read in the Old Testament is true, and we can know it for sure that it is the Lord's Word, because I just challenge you, who would make up some of the stories you read in the Old Testament? They had to be true. One of my favorites is the story of Jacob's marriage. Do you remember that story? You know, Jacob was a man who felt that rules were made to be broken, that they didn't apply to him, and he was constantly trying to make things work out his way in life rather than the way they were supposed to. And so because of some of that stuff and some of his chicanery, and, and, and uh, I won't go into all that now, he had to run away, and he got to uh, the homeland of his people, and there on the very first day there, he laid eyes on a young lady by the name of Rachel, who had come to draw water from a well. It was love at first sight, if there is such a thing. Now, he worked for seven years to be able to marry Rachel. Brock, aren't you glad things don't work the same way today? (laughs) I don't know if you're aware, but as of yesterday afternoon, Brock is now an engaged man. All right, and (laughs) I want you to know that he's marrying up. That's what we believe around here. Well, for seven years, Jacob worked to marry Rachel. And after those seven years, finally the day came, her father labaned through a grand feast. We don't know what all happened at that feast. I tend to kind of believe that there was a lot of celebrating. There was a lot of tipping of the cups. Because that night he went to the tent and he took his wife with him. And what a shock it was the next morning when the sunlight began streaming into that tent and he rolled over to look into the eyes of his new bride and there she was, Leah, not Rachel. Rachel's older sister. What a mean trick. That his father-in-law played on him. You can read about that whole story. There's a big explanation for it. But I want to suggest to you that there were some people in the New Testament that got just as big of a shock. And what kind of shock is that? You see, with the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost the Lord's church came into full bloom and power. And it began to spread and it began to expand. And suddenly these Jewish Christians who thought that God and the work of God was really only for them, they found out that they were suddenly married, so to speak, with a bunch of Gentiles, That some Gentiles, that they did not ask for, nor want particularly, that these Gentiles were being welcomed into the church just the same as the Jews were. And from the very beginning of the church, there was all of this friction between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, the Jewish believers were resistant to the evangelization of Gentiles. You can read about that in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. And even when God's purpose of saving the Gentiles became evident, some of the Jews insisted that the gentiles had to not only receive christ but they had to become jewish proselytes they had to submit themselves to circumcision and to also the keeping of the law in order to truly be saved now likewise on the other hand it appears that the jewish saints were inclined to look down upon their gentile brethren while at the same time the gentile brethren tended to Look down on the Jewish brethren you read about this in Romans chapter 11 and they looked down on the Jews because after all they said it was the Jews that did not believe in Jesus as their Messiah and they rejected Jesus and so this chapter is written to the Ephesians to help correct all of those problems and all of those disagreements between Jews and Jews and Gentiles. These Gentile believers in Ephesus were still somewhat curious and concerned about where their place was in the kingdom of God and in the church. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 11 is an extension of the first 10 verses. This chapter is divided in almost imperfect halves, verses 1 through 10, verses 11 through 22. Both of them follow a similar pattern. They have three levels to each of those half of the, of the chapter. You have that it talks first off about what we were without Christ, what Christ did, and what we have become as a result. And the second half follows the very same pattern. What we were, what Christ did, what we have become. The difference is... The first ten verses deal with us as individuals. You, every last one of you, and me included, we were dead in our sins. We had no hope at all. We could never earn our salvation. We couldn't even contribute any good works at all, baptism, belief, or anything else, for dead people have nothing to offer to God. They're dead. But Jesus quickened us and made us alive. That's what he did. And by grace, we were saved. And the difference now, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Not saved by our good works, but saved for good works. The first 10 verses deal with us as individuals. The second 11 verses deal with us corporately as the body of Christ, as a church. What were we? We were alienated from God without hope in the world. What did Christ do? He brought us together and he made us one, Jews and Gentiles alike, black and white alike. All of us, all of us are on the same equal ground because of salvation. And then we have become something different. And that's what we'll talk about today. If you remember, we said in this chapter... That we were saved from God's wrath. That was verse 1 through 3. We were saved by God's grace, verse 4 and 5, and verse 8. We were saved because of God's love, verse 4 and 5. We were saved for God's glory, verse 6 and 7 and 10. And now we are saved into God's family, verses 11 through 22. Into God's family and more. We take up our reading with verse 11. Follow along with me. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ "...alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." That's our past. But now, this is what Jesus did, beginning in verse 13. "...but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for it. Well, we said in these verses, 11 through 22, that there are three parts. And I ask you to note in your Bibles last week, if you mark in your Bibles or circle these words, the transitions, the three parts are clearly seen. Verse 13, or excuse me, verse 11, says, "At one time, he's looking back. At one time, this is what life was like without Christ. We were separated from God. We were alienated from the blessings of God's Word and God's people, the Commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promises. The promises of God did not apply to us. We were without hope, and we were without God in the world at one time. Verse 13, but now. It changes. The scene changes. But now. This is what Christ did. He brought us near. Literally, He brought us from the dead. He raised us up. He gave us life. He made us one. He gave us peace. He reconciled us to God, and He gave us access to the the Father. He made us one with Him and one with each other. That's what Christ did. But now. Now, we covered both of those points last week. This week, we look at point number three, and it's marked in verse 19 by the words, So then. Because of this, so then. He could have said, therefore. In other words, telling us what what we are to do and how we are to live as a result. So then. This is what we have become. And it's verses 19 through 22. And he gives us three metaphors in this passage, in this paragraph, this part of this paragraph. Do you remember what a metaphor is, kind of like an analogy, it's a word picture. He doesn't just explain what's different about our lives, he's already done that. He gives us a word picture of what we are. And what we are, what he's describing, is the church. He says, The church is this. Now, beloved, listen to me very closely. We need to learn how to be the church. Not just go to church. Now I know, go to church is desperately important. You can't be a faithful Christian without going to church to have relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that is provided you're not by health or some way providentially hindered. You need the church, and the church needs to you uh, needs you, and we need to go to church faithfully and regularly, but we need to not only go to church, we need to know how to be the church. The whole uh, process of sanctification, that is, from the moment of salvation for the rest of our lives as we learn to walk in Christ. Remember Colossians 2 and 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in him, As we learn to walk with Christ, as we learn to walk in Christ, this is called sanctification. We are saved, now we are growing into Christ-likeness. With every day, week, month, and year that passes, we should be becoming more like Christ all the time. And this is what it means to learn to be what we have become. We have become the church of the living God by being saved. Now we need to learn how to be the church, not just go to church. Does that make sense? That's why, And that's why he gives these three metaphors, these three analogies that I hope you'll take note of. First of all, look at verse 19, the first part of that verse. And we find it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints. Paul's right there. We are fellow citizens with the saints. Learning to be the church means that we learn to live as heavenly citizens. We learn to live as heavenly citizens. Now, it's interesting that in becoming Christians... He says we are no longer strangers and aliens. I want you to envision this if you will. There is a heavenly kingdom and there is an earthly kingdom. In the heavenly realm, in the heavenly kingdom, that's what we will inherit in its fullness one day when we leave this life. We already have some treasures there. And in the Spirit... We are already there. It's already a done deal. But we live not just in the spirit. We live also in the flesh. And the flesh cannot inherit a heavenly kingdom. That's why it says that God will give us a new body to inhabit that heavenly realm one day. But in the meantime, we're confined to time and space. We're confined to an earthly realm. We are spiritual beings living in an earthly kingdom. But he said, when you were saved, you no longer belong to this earthly kingdom. You are no longer a citizen here. Before, you were strangers and and exiles. You were strangers and, and aliens to the spiritual kingdom. And you were a citizen of an earthly kingdom. But when you got saved, all of that was reversed. You are no longer a stranger and alien to heavenly things, a stranger and alien to the Word of God, to the blessings of God, and to the kingdom of God. You are citizens in that heavenly kingdom. And you have become instead, now listen to me, because this is where the rub is. We have become instead strangers and exiles here on earth. Strangers and exiles, pilgrims here on earth. Listen very closely to these inspiring words from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. If you're familiar with Hebrews 11, you know that it is the faith chapter of God's Word, right? God's Hall of Fame. And he's talking about these men and women of faith of the Old Testament. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, listen now, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They recognized that their kingdom, their citizenship was something yet to come, that they lived as citizens of that kingdom, but as exiles here. For a people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, That is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They are seeking a homeland. As Abram, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, the other men and women of the Old Testament As they lived their lives on this earth, they were seeking and living for a homeland. But it was not the promised land of the Bible. That was a temporary dwelling place. That was a place that was a picture and a promise of what is much better and is yet to come. That is their homeland in heaven. They were living and looking for that homeland. They desired a better country. They desired a heavenly one. And because of that, it says God was not ashamed to be called their God because he had prepared for them a city. Now listen to me, folks. The same is true for you as a child of God. When God saved you, you were a stranger and an alien to heaven and to God's kingdom but he gave you citizenship and to be the church we need to learn how to live in this life as citizens Of that kingdom that we're anticipating. And we need to be longing for it. We need to be loving it. We need to be seeking that kingdom. That rule and reign of Christ. And understand in this world. We are under the dominion in many ways. Of the prince of the power of the air. Who is free Satan to do his evil work. And we see it all around us. We see it in pandemics. We see it in countries falling to evil people. We see it in people being persecuted, our brothers and our sisters in other parts of the world. We see the evil work of the enemy. We know someday, one day... The King of Kings and the Prince of Princes and the Lord of Lords is going to come and set all of that right. But until he does, we've got to live and anticipate what it means to be citizens of that kingdom. How can we do that? We can do it in two realms. We can do it in our individual heart as we surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ every day. And live like kingdom citizens instead of like people of this world and we can do it as a corporate body of Christ while the enemy may reign and rule out there we can decide because of our commitment to Christ and our commitment to each other that guess what he is not going to live and he's not going to be in control in here we as God's people living as kingdom citizens. Folks, listen to me. Some of you care too much about the world's approval. Some of us, all of us, care about the world's approval at least sometimes. But some are living for it completely. Wanting the approval of classmates. Wanting the approval of our neighbors. Wanting the approval of our friends. Wanting the approval of our employers. Wanting the approval of other people to somehow validate us and accept us and approve of us and don't look down on us. But listen to me, that's what the world seeks after. God's people who are citizens of God's kingdom care for one thing above all else, and that is the approval of their God. So we need to learn to live as kingdom citizens, as heavenly citizens. Paul talked about this in almost all of his letters. This is what he said in the book of Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. You got to transfer the day you got saved. You got transferred to God's kingdom. We read this in Philippians chapter 1. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself we already read in Romans 12 a few minutes ago how we are not to be conformed to this world but we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds by the sanctification of our minds by learning to live and to see heavenly things as being more important than earthly things it causes us to live differently to talk differently sometimes to dress differently to invest our money differently to love differently to look at God's Word differently and to relate to the church God's people differently That's what it means to live as heavenly citizens. Listen to these words by Michael Horton. I believe he hit the nail on the head. I believe it will be on the screen. The visible church is where you will find Christ's kingdom on the earth. And to disregard the kingdom is to disregard its king. Where is the kingdom of heaven? Seen. In this world, the kingdom of this earth, it is seen in the local, visible church. Nowhere else. Not that little kingdom that is you, that does whatever you want to do. But in the local church is the only place we see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom, at work in this earth. And when we disregard the church... We disregard the king of the church. Okay, have I beat that point to death? Can we move on to the second point very quickly? You got it? Say yes. Okay, thank you. To be the church, we have to learn to live as heavenly citizens. Number two, we have to live also as family members. Look at the second part of verse 19. The second part of verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Not only is God's people, not only is the church a kingdom, it is a family. It is a family. It is a household. That's why we call one another brothers and sisters. Okay? That's why you're supposed to call me Father. No, I'm kidding. We have but one Father, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is actually the God the Father in heaven. Jesus is actually our brother in this family. But understand, this is the most common metaphor in the New Testament for the church. It is a family. What this means is members of a spiritual family. We've been born again. We've been adopted into the family of the living God. We were once dead in our sins, we were outcasts, we were aliens from all that is good and from all that is God, but all that has changed. Let me ask you a question. Take just a moment, take a quick moment and just glance around you. Just look around you, okay? We're not a big congregation. We probably have about 70 or so people here today. There's some folks upstairs. Most folks are down here on the floor. Look around. Let me ask you a question. In what context, in what way, or for what occasion would this exact group ever gather? I mean, we're all from different families, right? We are from different backgrounds. We have different likes and dislikes. We have different experiences. We are we are all different ages this is not a homogeneous group now most churches today are seeking to build churches of people who all look like each other I have some friends that are not quite as ancient as I am down in Waxahachie Texas that visited a church in town That was growing uh, with a lot of young people. It was a very exciting place. They had colored lights. You know, they had some smoke going. I mean, it it was an exciting church, right? And they went, and the pastor actually told them you're welcome to come here, but you're not going to ever really feel at home because you're not the demographic we're trying to reach. I'd tell you what I think about that, but you probably wouldn't approve of my language. That's awful. That's demonic. That's satanic. Not the demographic we're trying to reach. We only want people who look a certain way, who fit certain categories, who are a certain age group. That's who we are here for. And I ask you, I ask you, what would ever bring this group, together except for one thing we are all saved at least by profession by the same God and the same gospel and we are all part of the same spiritual family it's not our music styles that gathers us together it's not a worship style because a worship style was never intended to draw people together. We don't all get here because we care for exactly the same kind of music, because we all like the same kind of this or the same kind of that. Have you ever noticed that in any gathering of people anywhere in society, There is something they have in common that brings them together. And many cases, and in most cases, when a group of people come together, it is the least common denominator that brings them together. Or if that's not what brought them together, in most groups, if they spend just a little while together, they will go downhill to the least common denominator. And oftentimes, that's something base, that's something sinful, that's something that does not bring glory to God. But have you ever thought about the fact that when God's people gather, we are not here because of the least common denominator among us. We are here because of the highest common denominator. It is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, that lives inside of me. That compels us to come together and overlook and overcome our differences of styles and preferences and ages and experiences. And instead to build a life together as the people of God, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, as the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a family that is made up of red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in His sight. Of those who love wearing masks and those who detest wearing masks. Of those who were vaccinated and those who think it's an abomination to get a vaccination. For all the differences among us, Jews and Gentiles, in Paul's day, slaves and free men. Those who were citizens of Rome and those who never had a hope of being a citizen of Rome. God brought them all together in the church. And God is doing the same thing today. And if you don't want to be a part of a church like that, and if you don't want to be a part of the kingdom like that, understand there's plenty of places out there in the world for you to gather and go through the motions of worship. But I'm going to tell you about the Lord's church. The Lord's church is one kingdom and it's one family. And listen. For you and me to overcome our differences, for the Lord's church to overcome differences as a family that genuinely loves each other and learns to love one another, I'm going to tell you, that will draw more people to Christ than all the fog and lights you can have in church to try to look good and appealing to the lost. It just will. This is what John White says. I've quoted it probably a hundred times since being your pastor. I've printed it in the worship guide. You've seen it over and over again, but listen to it. It does not change. There is nothing on earth which convinces people about heaven or that awakens their craving for heaven like the discovery of Christian brothers and sisters who love heaven. One another. What does that love do? The sight of loving unity among believers arrests the unbeliever. It crashes through the barriers of his intellect. That means it tears down all of his excuses against God and against God's word. It stirs up his conscience. And it creates, listen to this, I love this wording, it creates a tumult of longing in his heart. Why does it do that? Because lost people, human beings, were created to enjoy the very thing you are demonstrating. Folks, when lost people come in among us, when they see us relating to one another, either here or out in the world, do they see believers loving one another with the love of Christ? Do they? I know that all this social distancing stuff and all these masks and all this fear of a pandemic and, and all the blue tape we used to have in here kind of forcing you to separate. I know a lot of these things prevent us from showing emotions and affection for one another like hugs and handshakes and a lot of other things. But I'm going to tell you the thing, the greatest tool for evangelism we have is to love God and to love each other. The world cannot imitate that They cannot duplicate that. They cannot recreate that in any other context. Remember, they don't have the same common denominator, which is God the Holy Spirit. Don't be surprised or caught off guard when you see Satan attacking the unity of a local church. I want you to know churches are in trouble all over America today. Churches are splitting into factions and dividing. Pastors are leaving by the droves. It's very safely estimated that over the next year or two, over this pandemic, we will see 35% of the churches of America close their doors. And an equal percentage of God's men leave the ministry. Why? Because of Satan's attack on the church. In this case, through a pandemic. He's doing through a pandemic even what he could not do in some churches through false teaching. Through worship styles, through whatever else. Understand, don't be surprised that Satan is attacking the church. Don't be surprised that Satan attacks your family. You know why? Because to disrupt the unity and the love of a church, to disrupt the love and oneness of a marriage and a family, understand destroys the picture of Christ and his church. It destroys the metaphor of what it means to be the people of God living for the kingdom of God in this world. If he can divide us, if he can cause disruption in our homes And in our churches, he will win the battle. Well, notice what he says. I need to draw this to a close. So we need to learn to live as kingdom citizens, as heavenly citizens. We need to learn to live as members of God's family. And then we have a third thing. He talks about this household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And he says, Jesus... Is the cornerstone that's what gives balance and alignment to everything and it says the whole structure is being built up together and it grows into a what well verse 21 says it grows into a holy temple in the Lord that's the third thing we must learn to live as God's temple in this world It says, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's point number three. We must live as God's temple, a holy temple. We've referred to this, but very quickly I draw your attention to it again. In the Jewish mind, when he refers to the temple, what do they think of? The temple in Jerusalem, right? And that temple had a series of of courts the outermost court if you were to go up to the Temple Mount the outermost court was called the court of the Gentiles that's as close as Gentiles could get to the presence of God remember God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in that temple But the court of the Gentiles, they could not get very close. They could just barely get there where they could see the temple off a ways away. The next court was the court of the women. Women, you had a place. You were just barely ahead of Gentiles. But that's as close as you could go. And between the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles, there was a wall that Gentiles could not pass. Inside the court of the women, there was the court of the Israelites. What that meant was the men Israelites. And then you had closest to the temple, the court of the priests. And finally, inside the temple was the holy place and the holy of holy. So progressively, only certain people could get close to God. Okay? Okay. Now, Paul well knew how that worked. If you go back over to the book of Acts chapter 21, I'm encouraging you not to do this right now. But when Paul goes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, he goes back when he is arrested and he is shipped off later to Rome for the, to spend the rest of his life in prison and also to be executed. Understand, the case that was brought against Paul in Acts chapter 21 was that he was responsible for bringing a Gentile into the closer courts where no Gentile was supposed to be. Interestingly enough, the person they said was that Gentile was a man by the name of Trophimus who was from Ephesus. Now, it was a trumped-up charge. Paul didn't do that. He would not give reason for stumbling. But it's interesting that the very accusation made against him was that he brought one of the members of this church he's writing to into the court of the Israelites where he was not allowed to come. And on that basis, Paul is arrested and he's thrown into prison and he's shipped off to Rome. Well, the important part of this Is this that temple's been destroyed but the efficacy of that temple and what it represented was destroyed with Jesus death on the cross you remember when Jesus died on the cross a short distance away from the temple The moment he died, there was an earthquake. Different things happened. But one of the most significant things that happened was that in the temple, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, God from everybody else, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom, as it were, by God's hand itself, signifying that the way into God's presence was not just for a high priest, Once a year, wasn't just for a priest periodically who tried to get close and aspired to get close, but was for everybody, the Israelites, the women Jews, the Gentiles, and everybody else. That access to God has been given. We talked about that. We were given access. We were given admittance into the throne room of God because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And he tells these Ephesian believers. Listen. It's even better than that. You don't just have access to God in heaven. But you yourself. Are being built up. As God's temple. The temple of God now. Is not on a hilltop in Jerusalem. It is in your heart. It is in your heart. You. You are the temple of God. You're a citizen of his kingdom. You are a member of his family. You are the dwelling place of God on this earth. Now live like it. That's what he's saying to the Ephesian believers. He said it this way to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God? Now listen to this, Americans, we don't like this kind of talk. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You've been bought and paid for by God himself. So therefore, glorify God in your body, the temple of Of the Holy Spirit in 2nd Corinthians 6 he said this for we are the temple of the living God I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people he said it this way in Revelation chapter 21 at the end of the book He said, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, with people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Practically, what does it mean that you are a temple of God? That you are the dwelling place of God? It means that your life and the way you live should be marked by increasing holiness every day, being sanctified, becoming more like Christ. It means that you, your heart, your lips, your mouth, your mind, should be a place, a source of praise and worship to God. It means that your life should be a place also of sacrifices to God. Sacrificing your strength. Sacrificing yourself. Sacrificing your finances. Sacrificing your possessions. If need be, sacrificing your career, your job, whatever sacrifice Christ calls you to make in obedience to Him. To be the church. We must live as heavenly citizens, as citizens of God's kingdom here on earth, as members of God's household, as one family in Christ, and as God's temple indwelt by God the Holy Spirit himself. i leave you with these words from Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. Listen closely. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together, together as his church, we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Folks, this church family welcomes you. And, church family, we welcome one another as not blood, flesh, and blood, but something much higher, something much better as kindred spirits with the Holy Spirit living inside of us and together today as I lead us in closing prayer we pray for those who need our prayers today brother Bill Taylor expresses his thanks to you as a church for praying for him I went to see him the other afternoon expecting that he would die before the next day today he's up walking around and they're exercising him. We'll see what God is doing in the way of healing him. Continue to pray for him. Also for Miss Myrtle. We pray for others who are not able to be here because of COVID. Billy and Teresa. Perhaps others. We pray for others who are experiencing maybe various hindrances. Hindrances to their faith. Struggles in their life. We pray also for our brothers and sisters who live a great distance away from us who are facing down another hurricane. On the very day that Katrina hit, Ida will hit. Katrina was a Category 3 hurricane. Ida is just a few miles an hour away from being a Category 5. We pray. For our brothers and sisters may they be a strong witness may this storm be a cause for many people to come to Christ we pray for one another father thank you for your word thank you that you've made us a part of your kingdom and even while we live here on earth may we be faithful to live as citizens of heaven Father, thank you for making us a part of your family. May we love one another and prefer one another in all things. Thank you for making us a temple of your Holy Spirit. And Father, may your Spirit always be welcome to guide us and always be welcome to meet with us as we gather here for worship. Bless those that are present. May your Spirit be strong in their lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Our hearts desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.